Welcome back to another episode of the Outsider Sports Baseball Podcast. Corey Jason here alongside the crew, Ben Mandel, Dylan Mel, John Pauline, bringing you guys some more baseball talk. And I'm going to start it off with something that really kind of got under my skin. The Yankees this week were involved in two very minor scandals, but ones that annoyed me nonetheless. So Domingo Herman during Saturday's game was dealing, just lights out, just mowing down the twins left and right. Best start in years. And the umpires had a little issue with his hands. Now, we come to find out that it wasn't sticky stuff or anything like that. It was, he had too much, they thought maybe he had a little too much rosin on his hands. And the rosin combined with the sweat, because it was really hot that day, kind of created a uh, a little tacky substance. Nothing illegal, fully within the rules. But the umpire told him after one inning, hey, you know, just go wash your hands off and you're good. You're good. Then he kind of comes back out. The umpires start looking at his hands and start feeling them up. And this is where people kind of get attention brought to it. The umpire's like, hey, you know, your hands are still sticky. What's the deal? And the interpreter and Boone and everybody comes out and they're like, well, he washed his hands, but he doesn't like to use the rosin on the mound. He's somebody that likes to use the rosin that's in the dugout, which again, fully complies with the rules. So between him going to wash his hands off and coming back out, there wasn't much change, even though he did everything the umpire said. And the umpire seemed to understand and be cool with that explanation. It makes sense. But Rocco Baldelli, the Twins manager, came out all hot and heated and was yelling at the umpires. And I don't know, he showed what type of like mentally weak, no sack type of guy he is just out there yelling and screaming about, you know, how you got to eject him, how he's got to get out of there. And even in his post-game press conference, he's talking and he's like, yeah, you know, I re- I'm really glad that the umpires are going to be giving all these players leeway this year. Like, dude, come on, stop being a baby. You were given a good explanation. Everything made sense. But no, you had to cry and complain. How could I go back and tell the guys in the dugout that, you know, he was still allowed to play? You go back. You're the manager. Be in charge. Tell them, hey, this is what happened. And, you know, if they don't understand it, who cares? I mean, they followed the rules. He didn't do anything illegal. You're just upset that he was sitting you guys down one, two, three. Your high-powered offense that you, you showed on Thursday wasn't showing up. And that the Yankees were actually beating you like they'd done for the last 20 years. So Baldelli really showed what type of man he was, and that's to say not one at all. Because he just couldn't, you know, face the facts of the situation and that things were handled properly. Now, going back to Wednesday's game with the Yankees, they are playing in Cleveland. At the end of an inning, uh, we had a bit of a debacle with the replay. Basically, Aaron Hicks trapped the ball to for the second out of the innings and threw it to second for the third out for a double play. The umpires ruled it a catch, so double play. Inning over, everybody's leaving the field. Clark Schmidt was at that point pitching pretty well, you know, one of his better starts this year. And then we see the ball, we see the play pop up over the uh, video board in between innings. The crowd starts bowing, the umpires see it, and then – Terry Francona, well after the 15 seconds you have to challenge a play, decides to go and challenge it. And we know that they challenged it because when the umpires announced it, they said Cleveland is challenging the rule in the play. And then afterwards they say Cleveland retains their challenge. 
So we know that Cleveland challenged the play outside the 15 seconds of uh, allowance in order to get that done. And Aaron Boone came out yelling hot because they overturned it. And basically he was saying, yeah, you got the play right. And we ended, the Yankees ended up giving up more runs that inning anyway before they were able to get out of the jam. But you didn't follow the proper rules and the proper channels. MLB after the game came out and said that they handled things properly and that it was the Yankees that challenged it, which Aaron Boone after the game said the Yankees certainly did not challenge it. They purposely didn't because that would allow Cleveland to replay it and get more time to challenge it because they would have 15 seconds after the challenge to then challenge the play. So a whole lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. The Yankees did end up winning that game, the rubber game of that series, but just a lot of convoluted backtracking by the league office Basically saying, hey, you know, the umpires are wrong, but we're going to say they're right because you're not allowed to protest games anymore. They quietly got rid of that a few years ago, and there's no recourse for misapplying rules anymore. So I want to put this out there for you guys. In either the Herman scenario or the replay scenario, do you guys have any, you know, takes on it? How, how does that make you feel? Was either thing, you know, misapplied or how are the rules appropriated there? Yeah, you know, Corey, as the other Yankee fan on the podcast here, um, you know, you touched really a lot on the Herman situation, so I don't want to dive too deep into it. I just think it's a shame that that was the story coming out of the game when Herman has been a guy that's been in the Yankee system for a little while now, and there's always been questions of can he be dependable? And this may have very well been, to my memory at least, his best start ever, right? 11 strikeouts, one earned run, no walks, six and a third innings pitched, these were like serious, really good starter numbers from Herman, which the Yankees desperately need right now with all of their injuries. And it sucks that the story coming out was Rosenbag in the dugout. Is it cheating? Um, to speak on the replay, that's the one that really annoyed me the most because the whole thing is what's the point then of having the challenge play rules if the umps can just change them whenever they see fit? And I know we're going to get into some other umpire rules later and with the pitch clock and stuff, but, you know, either be by the book or allow for changes, one or the other. And in this situation, you can't just award Cleveland additional time to replay because you know you messed up. They didn't challenge in the 15 seconds. It's moving a long time. I agree here. I think that they need to either change the rules so that way teams can just challenge whenever, as long as it's challenged before the next pitch, or you don't let Cleveland challenge there. I understand you got the play wrong. You want to get the play right. So, okay, you can challenge up until the next pitch. You're trying to increase pace of play. That's why you put the, you cap that limit now down to 15 seconds. Well, these teams guess the pitchers are going to try to quick pitch and on plays like that, who knows? There really are just a whole bunch of things that can be changed though. We hate the pitch clock. I think that's been pretty much um, asserted on this podcast by most of us. And then these challenges as well. What is the league doing? Rob Manfred doesn't even seem to know these umpires are not consistent. We had a lot of old, a lot of the other older umpires left. A lot of new guys are in. They're trying to change the rules in the process. There's a lot of confusion, and I think that this league really needs to figure it out because it's not something that can continue throughout the season, and you expect fans to just ignore. 
Yeah, well said. They they kind of they're trying to change things, and fans are they're expecting people to turn a blind eye. Something though we can't turn a blind eye to is Stanton is on the IL again. Giancarlo Stanton hits the ten day with a hamstring injury. He spent about forty percent of his time with the Yankees on the IL, and as a Stanton believer, it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow, but I still believe in him. Yeah, Corey, it sucks. And, you know, my level of concern here on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say is about a 1. The Yankees, they've just been overly cautious all early in this season. And I don't blame them for being so, right? You have some depth pieces that you want to try and work out. Who's going to get roster spots when Harrison Bader's back? You know, this allows potentially more time for that if Stanton's on the IL. And you're just figuring out the roster. The Yankees have no problem winning games, missing pieces in the regular season. We're seeing that right now. This is ultimately so you could test out the bench utility players, see who's most likely to be on the roster, and keep your major stars like Stanton, like Rodon, Severino, Bader, all of these guys that they've been overly cautious with healthy for October. It sucks to see Stanton go on the 10-day IL, but overall, I'm not too concerned. Other news we also have, Brett Beatty of the New York Mets gets called up, finally. Bad Bunny started a sports agency. I don't know if you guys saw that. He's got a couple guys under his agency now, Wilmer Flores, Santiago Espinal, Jonathan Daza, plus a couple prospects, the Dodgers, Diego Cartagena, and the Giants, Mauricio, uh, my bad, Marco Luciano. So he's got a a couple names in there. I wonder uh, how this agency is going to blossom in the league. Yeah, I think that it's something that can be really special. I think a lot of those uh, Spanish uh, players coming up through the system are going to want to join this. It's going to be something that helps them feel a little bit better and a little bit safer in terms of what they're getting into, just because it's a little bit more recognizable. Now, I do want to touch on Brett Beatty being called up. I mentioned this at the beginning of the season when the Mets sent him down. If they didn't feel like he was going to make an immediate big-time impact, why waste the year of service time? He's coming up now as we head towards the end of April. It's going to be someone who will have the chance to play third base. Eduardo Escobar has been struggling. He didn't really stand out too much outside of the month of September last season. So Brett Beatty's going to have a chance to fill one of the few holes that this Mets lineup has, and that's over at third base. So definitely exciting to see one of the Mets' top prospects. Not the top prospect, because Alvarez still technically holds that. So really exciting to see both of them up here and hopefully making an impact. Now, also, we have Trevor Bauer getting back into baseball. Bauer is making his Nippon League debut in their minor league system. Bauer suspended for a pretty long time, parts of like two or three years, under the league's domestic violence policy. That's a whole nother separate uh, conversation about how that went down. But also the Rays, they finally lost a game to Toronto, so there are no longer any undefeated teams in the league. Max Scherzer, He's got soreness in his arm, so his next start is pushed to Wednesday. So that's something to look at with the Mets' rotation, how the injuries seem to be piling up a little bit. And if age is catching up to a guy like Scherzer and Verlander, who has yet to make his Met debut. Plus, guys, I want to talk about this, the pitch clock and ovations. To me, what happened with uh, Bellinger is an indictment on the whole pitch clock system. And 
pretty much the textbook reason why it should be booted from the league. The people who came up with it and decided to implement it should be banned from baseball forever, not even allowed to step foot in a stadium. They shouldn't even be allowed to watch it on TV because of how much detrimental uh, harm they're doing to the game. But basically, Cody Bellinger came back to the Dodgers in their game with the Cubs, right? And he got a standing ovation from the crowd. It was a great Dodger. They loved him there. And during that ovation, as he was taking it all in, he was assessed a strike. So he started the at-bat 0-1 because the pitcher was technically ready. A batter needs to step in the box and be looking at the pitcher with about eight seconds left on the pitch clock. Now, the umpires, they're not given any leeway with this either. It's not like the umpire not like the umpire could have seen what was going on and said, hey, you know, I'm going to let this ride. They're told as soon as it happens, they get a little buzz in their ear and they have to do what it says. So they're really making a a donkey out of Rob Manfred, so to speak, because just how embarrassing is it that players aren't allowed to have ovations from the crowd that take a while? Like imagine Albert Pujols coming up after hitting 700 last year and not being able to soak in the crowd because he has to get in there to hit. Just come on, what are we doing? What, why is there even any pitch clock going into the beginning of an at-bat? If you're trying to add it to get pace of play going, add it in between pitches in the same at-bat. Why is there any necessity for in-between batters in general? Just why? Let guys have their rituals and come up to the plate. You're not going to lose much time. Games are getting close to being under two hours as it is. So what is that really going to harm if you allow guys to get up to the plate and just have a normal beginning to their at-bat before you throw a wrench into into everything with the pitch clock. But I want to hear what you guys have to say about this because I still hate the pitch clock in its entirety, but this really gets me angry because a guy like Bellinger, who's beloved by Dodger fans, should be allowed to be appreciated by the fans without having to worry about starting off in a hole to begin with. Yeah, Corey. Uh, I know Ben mentioned... uh that he believed the podcast as a whole really was against the pitch clock. Um, I personally enjoy the idea of the pitch clock, but obviously we're seeing that there are some flaws. I do want to, you know, just say it is early on in the process. The MLB and Rob Manford specifically don't ever deserve the benefit of the doubt for the ability to implement new things and actually have a good process. However, you know, I liked what you said. Maybe start the pitch clock after the first pitch is assessed. That way these moments can happen. Perhaps that's a rule that gets implemented going forward. Or maybe give the umpires some leeway. You know, you like you said, they're just told when to issue the strike or when to issue the ball. Maybe give an umpire some leeway for moments like this. I'm not sure what the exact method for this is. However, if umpires are allowed to make up a rule on the fly that the guardians are allowed to challenge a play after three minutes, then maybe they can make up a rule on the fly that Cody Bellinger is allowed to enjoy a standing ovation for 10 seconds. Well, that's the big thing. And you hit the nail on the head there. Baseball is losing some of the moments that really make it our national pastime. This is exactly what people who are not fans of the pitch clock are saying is going to happen. These are things that baseball has said it wasn't going to affect, and it is going out there and affecting them. You know what? You want a game under two hours? Watch a different sport. It's just not baseball. 
I think as of now, as the pitch as the pitch clock rule stands, it's just not gonna work. They're gonna have to rework it because eventually, when playoff ball comes and the pitch clock's there during the playoffs, it's just not gonna feel right because the games are already feeling rushed. And I mean, now some games when they're like low scoring games, like you know it's 0-2 and nothing's really going on. Pitch clock's not too bad to have there to keep the game moving along. But when it gets a tight game going to the ninth inning and it's like and it like every pitch counts everything counts it's like and it just and it, you're rushing it it you just you lose you lose what baseball is about and i think it's only a matter of time until one of these teams like eventually at the end of the season it's only a matter of time at the end of the season until one of these some team loses a big game to a pitch clock violation and there's going to be a big talk about changing the rule then i just hate that we have to have this conversation because it wasn't broken the system wasn't broken if you just laid out a mandate from the league to team saying hey Let's just pick it up in between at-bats. Let's let's try this out first. Let's try to speed it up a little bit. Then none of these things would even have to happen. But the league decided we don't want to leave it in the players' hands. We want to have a mandate. We want to be known as the most, you know, progressive, rule-changing administration in baseball history. And yet they're falling flat in their face. They're not actually finding what the issues are because something like the pitch clock isn't going to bring more people into the sport because it doesn't change the sport fundamentally. It's the access. That's what's really important. Why are people in uh, Illinois or Iowa blacked out of seven major league teams? Why can they not watch them on streaming or on TV? That's the real issues. And that's something that the front, the, uh, the league office really needs to figure out. But before I get into a long winded uh, tirade about everything wrong with the sport I love, let's get into the studs and duds because a couple of these guys are performing just as well as the pitch clock. And that's to say not good. So let's start it off. John, give me your stud and give me your dud. My stud is going to be Brandon Lowe has been an integral part of the Rays and them getting to where they were with their win streak. His last seven games, he had nine hits, four home runs, nine RBIs, two walks, and a stolen base to boot. He just had a great week, absolutely amazing week. And then my dud is going to be Sir Anthony Dominguez. He's been having an abysmal year so far. He's he's rocking a 12.7 ERA. And just, he basically went from being the Phillies closer to a guy that when he come, when when they put him in, you, you're worried and you're worried he's going to give up a bunch of runs and you don't even want to see him out on the mound anymore. All right, Ben, let's head to you. Who is your stud and who is your dud? My stud is Pablo Lopez, pitcher for the Minnesota Twins. Now, Corey, this is someone who we talked about extensively during our preseason talk with, um, you know, the big trade, sending away the batting champion in Arias to Miami for Lopez. And I talked about how this guy really can go out there and pitch and is someone that uh, was very special for the Marlins. Well, he went out through seven and two-third innings to start the week, only allowing three hits and two runs, ten strikeouts. Then went, pitched against the Yankees on Sunday, and, you know, while he did go and take the loss, he allowed seven hits, just two runs and seven strikeouts across six innings against a really good lineup. Pablo Lopez has been very special in everything the Twins could have asked for. Now, going into my dud, it's the closer for the Astros, Ryan Presley, and he's just had an abysmal start to the year. He only threw one and a third innings this week, three hits, three earned runs, only one strikeout. He suffered a loss, zero saves, 
Ryan Presley has just not been good this year. He still has yet to pick up a save. This is someone that a lot of people were expecting to be a lockdown guy once again for the Astros. Just has not been there to start the year. ERA over eight across six innings so far. Now, how about you, Dylan? Stud and dud. Yeah, ironically, my stud is actually the counterpart to that Pablo Lopez deal, and I'm going to go with second baseman for the Marlins, Luis Arias. I mean, I could end the statement here at he hit for the cycle this week, and that's good enough reason for him to be a stud, but he's actually batting right now over 5'11 in the first 14 games, and this hasn't been done since Barry Bonds in 2004. That's how good of a start to the year he's having batting wise hit for the cycle this week the marlins got a really good hitter for their lineup and honestly this may this trade may look as one of the most fair deals i've seen in a long long time and for my dud i have hobby bias um you know hobby bias has kind of been on a decline for a really long time now but he's batting under 150 to start the year over the last week it's it's just been a sore sight he doesn't even look locked in on defense the base running you hate to see it because he was one of the league's premier up-and-coming players, but he's he's just been a dud for a, a while now, and he was a dud this week. For me, my stud, Bobby Witt Jr., Kansas City Royals, one of the nice young stars of the league. He's 12 for 22 over the last week. That's good for a 545 batting average. He's also had, not counting uh, Sunday's games, he's had three three-hit games in a row. It's a pretty, pretty great stretch right there for him. My dud, Michael Waka, San Diego Padres. His start versus the Milwaukee Brewers, he went four and a third innings, gave up 11 hits, seven runs, two home runs, a walk, and three strikeouts. Pitched to a 6.06 ERA, just an abysmal start. And I'm not even that, and, you know, I'm not upset about it just because I picked him up in fantasy, but because. I've always thought he had good stuff dating back to his Cardinals days, and he's just fallen off a cliff. But moving on, let's get into our top 10 rankings. And I kind of want to start it off. Ben, I want to hear why you included the Cubs in your top 10. And also, how come the Mets made it in this week, but they weren't in your top 10 last week? So, yeah, I'll start with the Cubs. And the thing with the Cubs and the Going into my power rankings is I went off of a few things, record and run differential. With weekly power rankings and it being so early on in the season, we don't have too much to go off of just yet. I don't want to penalize teams for having a good start but not having high expectations. So a team like the Cubs, they're 7-5. and five. They are four and a half games back off of the top spot in the league, technically, in Tampa Bay. They have a plus 16 run differential. When you look at teams like Cleveland, they're nine and six, but they're a minus one run differential. That means the Cubs are scoring runs. The young guys are playing well. Guys like Nico Horner have stepped up and stepped in well. He's gotten that extension and proving that, you know, he can play. Ian Happ 
playing well. You know, this is a group of Cubs that I don't necessarily think they'll be in the top 10 throughout most of the season, but right now they've been playing very well and they certainly deserve to be there, in my opinion. When I look at the New York Mets, the reason why I put them in this week and did not have them in last week is they showed me more. They went out there, they beat the Padres two out of three games. They went out, took care of business so far in Oakland. Pete Alonso is playing great. He can be an MVP candidate if he keeps this up, tied for the league lead in home runs entering Sunday. The pitching is also holding up so far. I know Scherzer's start was pushed back, but I'm not too worried about it. They would have pushed it back a little bit more or put him on the injured list if it was something more serious. Sounds like Verlander's on his way back as well. And while Senga may not have gone a full five innings against Oakland, I still have liked what I've seen out of him, and I think he can be a very good piece in this rotation. David Peterson and Tyler McGill I feel like I know what I'm getting out of them and that is the biggest thing they'll be consistent you will be in games that Tyler McGill and David Peterson pitch at this point and some other great news Edwin Diaz he says he's shooting for a return this year and could be big if this team does make the playoffs because in reality that's what you need him for just get in and then if Edwin Diaz is somehow able to contribute this year that's amazing Brandon Nemo's an on-base machine and now Brett Beatty coming up to hopefully fill one of the few holes on this roster what's there not to like about the New York Mets yeah now let me just run out what the Outsider Sports crew, what our rankings were. Going from number one down to 10, Tampa's one, Atlanta's two, Milwaukee three, Yankees four, Minnesota five, Toronto six, Dodgers seven, the Mets eight, Padres nine, Guardians 10, the Rangers, Astros, and Cubs all receiving votes. Now, Dylan... You had the Rangers in your top 10. You had them at eight. What's the thinking behind the Rangers, and is this a sustainable level of play for them? Yeah, you know, Corey, the sustainability, that's still a question for me because coming into the season, the Rangers were one of those teams that we discussed as a potential AL wildcard team. They have the pieces there with the pitching, with DeGrom, Eovaldi, Perez, And to be honest, the pitching hasn't been that great thus far to start the year, but they're still first in the AL West at eight and six. The run differential is right now at plus 12, which is a little bit above average, but good enough to get them in that first place spot while the Astros are struggling. They're four and two in their last six games. And Corey Seager has been off to a fantastic start for this year, batting 359 in the early going. And yes, it is early, but That's what they paid him all this money to do, to be a superstar. A little underwhelming he was, in my opinion, last year. He's coming out hot this year. They'd love to have Marcus Simeon pick it up. He's batting 237 currently. But Adolis Garcia, this guy's been a power machine for them. Three homers, 14 RBIs. We knew that they had the lineup to cause problems, and that's what it's doing. If the pitching from DeGrom and Eovaldi can pick up, this Rangers team could be very, very scary. And with the Mariners and the Astros coming out to a slow start, This spells well for Texas to potentially make a playoff push this year. Now, John, you had the Twins at nine, slower than anybody else in the Outsider Sports crew. What's your thought process behind that? And do you think the Twins could uh, eventually move up on your list, or do you see them falling down a little bit? I think the Twins' 10-6 and record is a little deceiving just because of the teams they played. I mean, they they played played the Royals, the Marlins the Astros and the White Sox 
and the Royals are at the bottom of the barrel. The thing, the Marlins aren't, you know, aren't too high up either. And the Astros are just not playing good baseball right now. Like they're underperforming horrendously, you know, the former World Series winners. And they just, and then, and the White Sox, they're okay, but they're not top 10 team right now. And they split the series with the Yankees now. So I just think where I have them, I think they're lower, but I think they're, you know, right where they should be. So I think their record is a little deceiving just because of the teams they played. But I think if they keep it up this week and, you know, maybe win a few series, pick up, win, get a few series wins and sweeps here, I think they could move up and maybe break the top five for me. Yeah. And I just want to open it up now. Yankees, Phillies, Mets, any thoughts on our teams that you guys kind of want to put out there? Because I know the Yankees are a team for me that they're playing as well as they have to start a season in years, but they just don't feel like they're dominating. What do you, how do you guys feel about your teams? Yeah, Corey, I'm going to piggyback on the Yankees talk. We talked about them to an extent earlier, so I don't want to go too in depth right now, but their record isn't reflective of how dominant they've been in terms of lack of dominance. Like you mentioned, Garrett Cole, he's really looking good to start. I picked him to the AL Cy Young as of right now, a month in. He is that, but they're just not healthy, and they're still finding a way to win, whether it be a guy like Frenchie Cordero stepping up or Aaron Judge, LeMayhew still doing excellent work. They're just geeking out wins with a limited roster, and I think this team's going to be very, very scary come June, July, once the full team's back out there. All right. Now let's move into our weekly series highlight. This is going to cover April 17th all the way through April 24th. A little Monday to Monday action. The series I want to highlight, the Angels go to New York and play the Yankees in the early part of the week. That series will start Tuesday and run through Thursday night. And the reason I want to highlight it is, one, I'm going to the game on Tuesday. Very excited. I tried to plan it out where I would see Cole versus Otani. Life had a different aspect. Uh, look at that and laughed at me. I missed both those pitchers by one start each. Cole pitching on Sunday. Otani due to pitch Monday in Boston. Hopefully there's a rain out there where Otani will pitch Tuesday versus the Yankees. But I just think the way the Angels are playing, the Yankees are a team that'll be a good barometer to see where they're at because the Yankees are a team that are expected to make the playoffs, whether they win their division or not but in general should be a playoff team and be a good force come October. And if the angels want to be a playoff team, they need to be able to beat teams like the Yankees on the road, especially. And when there's not such a great pitching matchup, like the series starts off Clark Schmidt versus Griffin canning. So the angels need this series. They need to perform well. And the Yankees haven't lost a series yet to start the year. So they look to keep that streak going in that series what other series do you guys have out there that you think uh should be highlighted yeah Corey. again continuing to talk on an al west team i want to talk about the astros series starting on friday the 21st a little apple tv series houston travels to atlanta now houston's been off to a slow start we highlighted this at length with bregman being a dud the last two weeks before this Presley being one this week, and overall them being out of our top 10. However, they have a real rough stretch coming up. They got Toronto, Atlanta, and then Tampa Bay. 
if they can't pick it up by this Atlanta series, which I'll be looking for them to do, they're going to fall into a hole which could allow a team like Texas, the Angels, or the Mariners to get a lead that, you know, especially if it's the Mariners from what we know about them, the Astros could end up being a wild card team because of a really, really slow start. Yeah, I agree with you there, Dylan. Another series I want to look at, and it's a couple of teams who are struggling right now, and it is the Phillies and White Sox. They're going to meet in Chicago to start the week. This is a 6-9 and nine White Sox team and a 5-10 and 10 Phillies team. Records are similar. They're both teams with a lot of talent who are underachieving to start. The Phillies a minus 27 in the run differential, while the White Sox are a minus 19. Two teams looking to right the ship. Let's see who can do it. The series I'm excited for is the uh, Mets at the Dodgers series starting Wednesday. And the particular mat, the particular matchup I'm looking forward to is is the Wednesday one between Scherzer and Syndergaard. Considering Scherzer just came is just coming off some shoulder sore, soreness and his start got pushed back to Wednesday, so it'll be interesting to see how he does because he's been off to a little bit of a rocky start this year too. And also Beatty will be up too, so it'll be interesting to see how he does too against the Dodgers, who are a very good NL National League team. Yeah, also to throw in there about Noah Syndergaard, John. This is a guy who dodged the Mets all year last year when the Angels came to town, when the Mets were in Los Angeles, as well as when the Philadelphia Phillies were playing the Mets. Syndergaard has had his starts pushed back. He did not want to face them. I cannot wait to see how this plays out uh, if Syndergaard actually does take them out against the Mets. Yeah, Ben, you took the words right out of my mouth, but... I wouldn't count on Syndergaard pitching against the Mets. He's scared. He's been scared. He'll always be scared. I'd be shocked if he ever throws a pitch against them just because he can't handle the noise. Luckily for him, that game is in L.A., so if he did pitch, it wouldn't be the same. But he needs to pitch a game in New York in front of those fans because he left on bad terms, and the fans rightfully so have a lot of animosity for him. But that's going to do it here for the Outsider Sports Baseball Podcast. Keep tuning in every week. Check us out, outsidersports.net, the Twitter at Outsidersports3, plus YouTube and TikTok, just search Outsidersports. But that's going to do it. For Ben Mandel, Dylan Mel, John Pauline, I'm Corey Jason. Have a good one.